Hello and welcome to The Rabbit Hole, the definitive developer's podcast and teched out Chelsea, New York. I'm your host, Michael Nunez. I have my co-host today, Dave Anderson. My producer, William Jeffries. And today we'll be talking about incremental design. But before I continue, we have a special guest, principal consultant from Stride, Conrad Benham. Conrad, what's going on? Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, getting around this topic and talking about it. Hey, glad you came down to, to have a chat. Like I said before, today we'll be talking about incremental design and how working under this design using the Agile process will help your team build better products and more feedback from your users and how that can help you boost sales at the end of the day. Sounds clutch. Conrad, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about why we should be excited about incremental design. Yeah, so incremental design is a is a basically taking your software that you're building and trying to build it just in time from a design perspective without spending weeks and months of effort to design your classes and your architecture and getting all of those things together. You know, in, in the pre-agile days, it was very common to spend weeks and months putting together designs of archi- architectural designs, class diagrams. Mm. Yeah, UML. UML. Great. I mean, UML is still very important. Don't get me wrong. Okay. Lightweight UML is what I go for, which is a very, very small subset. You know, class interaction diagrams where you've got your classes and then you've got flows between your classes dictating the the methods that are being called. I mean, I I remember creating some of those in my first job straight out of university and they weren't the best thing they were useful for was to light fires. Oh, <laughs> yes. And keep the office warm in the winter time. That's right. Those are always good things. Back, back in the tough Java 1 days. Yeah, that's it. yeah well, I think we got to Java 2 by that point. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it was way back then. So the idea is about taking your software and, and well, not so much your software, but your, your requirements, your business requirements, getting your stories and figuring out what it is that you need to develop to be able to meet those requirements without adding more functionality than is needed or more software rather than is needed. And there's all sorts of reasons that you wouldn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. For example, if you add something that isn't being used, something that the business didn't ask for, so they've taken away from the business's ability to get something that they actually want. And, and coupled with that is the fact that you now have to maintain that software, which if it wasn't in the system to begin with, you wouldn't have to maintain it. Right, like kind of over-engineering to have it be the most flexible possible endpoint where you can stuff all kinds of fun user data into it when actually all you need is like a thumbs up. Right, like <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. So, you know, I've worked on systems where I had an idea as to what the future roadmap was going to be, what we needed to develop, but I didn't necessarily know what, we would develop at any point in time. So, you know, the, and that's because the business could have had, have had the prerogative to be able to change their requirements at any point. So something that was a priority today may not become a priority in a few weeks' time. So we're very able to respond to the change. And so using a, a combination of design patterns and dependency injection, if in Java or a statically typed language, I've been able to create software that can change and, and evolve over time because of the patterns that are in use. Mm. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious, like as you're kind of 
building this design and discovering it, uncovering the design with your stakeholders as you go, how do you make sure that you're working on the most important thing? I guess like when you're doing a big upfront design, you can make a big list of things and from that maybe derive something that's important. Like how does that work with incremental design? Yeah, I mean, when you're doing it incrementally, you're really trying to take the big feature set that you have Mm-hmm. And just focus on the things that are of greatest importance because they'll de- derive business value soon and allow the users to give feedback and start using and, and weigh in on the software that's being built. And then as you add more and more, you will hopefully be adding new functionality that adds on the existing functionality over time. Mm-hmm. Does that okay. make sense? Yeah, I think so. So you're you're kind of driving towards like a new a new feature or like right something so you, different. Right. So you you're not necessarily driving to solve tomorrow's problems by engineering things that you don't need today, mm-hmm. but you're really trying to solve today's business problems by leveraging technology to solve the, today's problems, keeping in mind that tomorrow may never happen in terms of the fact that you may never end up doing the stories that you think you're doing. I've seen a lot of time being wasted by trying to build big frameworks that end up not having any relevance because they do everything. Right. They're beautiful Beautiful, code. yeah. <laughs> beautiful code. Well, it's not like, even beautiful code. Lots of reflections, no. <laughs> so they're difficult to understand and maintain. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that seems like an interesting balance where you have to kind of strike a chord between having a tight iteration where like you're 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 staying close to today's needs, but you don't want to be too close because you don't want to just be like moving buttons around on a page or changing the colors. Like you want to be making some meaningful progress, but you also don't want to be too speculative and pushing too far out. Right. Yeah. I mean, it it requires eventually you'll need to do some refactoring. Mm hmm. But yeah, you don't want to be doing oodles and oodles of refactoring. Another thing that I, I th- there are a few other things that help. Pair programming is one, because then you don't get silos of knowledge. You get a lot of shared knowledge and context and understanding. Test-driven development is also very important. So test-driven development is not just about testing, but also about the design of your software. If it's easy to test, then it's generally going to be very easy to maintain and extend as well. Yeah, definitely. Like much easier to reason about because everything is there on the table in front of you. Right. Yeah. I like I like to look at tests to as like documentation as well. Yeah. It's just additional documentation on why this particular function is going to respond this way. And testing definitely gives you more insight on the implementation that's currently deployed or the increment the increments that you got to this point will be explained in the test as well as the code itself. Yeah. Right? Footnote, see episode five. <laughs> Is it five? I believe, I believe it's one of the uh, early episodes we had on uh, test-driven development. Nice. Definitely, we always bounce back to it because it's such an important aspect to the life that we live as, as developers and as consultants. I have a question, though. So it's, this seems like incremental design is something that goes beyond the developer's mindset. I imagine like, you know, if you're working on a team, where it's like, all right, take this 400-page spec and make it happen, and I'll see you in six months. Like, there's nothing incremental about that, and that goes outside the the realm of the developer themselves. So I imagine that the team would all have to be in it together, where it's the project manager and the developers, the product owner, have to kind of live in building things incrementally. Is it possible to change a team that has worked on 400-page spec sheets 
to now think incrementally in their in their product? I mean, I'm sure it is if you have enough time and, and patience and energy. I think that doing something, changing a team that is very upfront, the term is big design upfront or big upfront design. Right. That is a very big challenge because there's often a lot of cultural issues. Um, you've got people who've been used to doing things in a big upfront manner. Right. So it can yeah. be very hard to break that trend. So, you know, I've always found it difficult. I think if, as consultants, I think it would be easier, but still not easy, mm-hmm. if we go in as, a, as a, an orchestrated group right. as opposed to smaller individuals. But even then, it's not going to be easy to solve that problem. So yeah. I, don't, I don't have any easy answers for that. Right. And sometimes it's also required by the business that you need yeah. to have these deliverables, these documents that say, this is what went into it and this is our design process and whatnot. Absolutely. So, there are many different businesses like hospitals, finance. Yeah. I've, I've worked in healthcare as well. Yeah. Very regulated. Exactly. And when you have those regulations, that's when you have to have a lot of these documents. So there's a, there's a contention between trying to do things lightweight yeah, and, and yeah. being compliant. But, yeah. And, and, like the way I always thought about it was that there's this there's a spirit of the compliance, which is that you should be thoughtful and mindful of your process and document it. But then there's also the actual like practice and like the, the best thing to do to figure out what that design should be is that you should do a little bit of requirements and then start building it and see if you're right. So like if you can get away with like doing little iterations behind, you know, the scenes, then that I think that that's a good strategy. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, like. It might be possible to take the ultimate design that you come up with and use that in your documentation. Retroactively. I mean, retroactively, yeah. exactly. Or r- just run a command on your program <laughs> and like get a UML diagram. Wow, look at all this work I did. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so, You're going back to rational rows there. <laughs> let me play devil's advocate here. I'm actually a proponent of incremental design, but for sake of argument, I think this will be a more interesting conversation. If somebody disagrees, I'm happy to follow that sword. <laughs> how would you, like, how could you justify taking so much, taking so much uncertainty on? Because the business needs to know whether or not it's worth the investment in order to, in order to get the product that they want, right? So if I'm a stakeholder, if I'm a business guy, and I'm going to, I'm going to embark on this quest to, I'm, I'm going to get in this boat with you and, and allow you to design software for me. How can I sleep at night knowing that there's no plan for what's going to take me all the way to the full featured app that I envision? Like, it's a big leap of faith for me to say, you can just deliver this one tiny piece and there's no promise that in a reasonable amount of time for an amount of money that I can afford that I'll actually have the product I'm, in, I'm asking for. Mm, that's a great question. So I think one of the answers or aspects to the answer is when you're doing things incrementally, you are trying to show value as soon as you possibly can. So while you definitely... Not, while while you're showing that value, you're delivering software, you're delivering workable software, your stories should be aligned to functionality that the business can use or rather a user can use. And if you can do that, generally I've been able to find that I can convince the stakeholders and gain trust through, through showing regular delivery of functionality. And so generally I'd work in sprints of two weeks and... Or, or if it's a particularly 
contentious project, maybe sprints of one week, because then you get a lot of fast feedback. And then over time, if you can continue to show repeated delivery effort, say over three or four iterations, and that you haven't you know, dropped and slowed down, you can start to gain trust. But yeah, there is always that trust issue up front. Now, there's even, so, so the, the idea there is that if you can't make progress and you can't gain the trust, well, you've only lost what would amount to maybe a month's worth of effort or maybe two months' worth of effort rather than six to 12 months' worth of effort, which you would lose if you if you big upfront project with a big wad of documentation and design and so on fails. So what if I'm a, a totally non-technical business person, I, I don't have any, any savvy here, and I'm really unable to tell based off of how much progress you're making, whether or not you're going to be able to finish my app in the, you know, six months and $300,000 that I have allotted for it. Hmm. I mean, I mean, that's a good question. Like, I don't think you necessarily get to answer that question with Agile. What you get to answer is that you have a ballpark estimate of where we think we'll be in six months with that budget. But the, the real thing that we can do is break it down into small increments of time, two-week iterations, and show value over that time. And as we get closer, really whittle down on the functionality. So there, will be, there may well be a trade-off of functionality that's utmost important versus things that aren't so important. But Bobby right. over here promised me that he would deliver the entire app on time and on budget. Mm-hmm. Hey, hey, yeah. hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a second. Yeah, wait. I, just, I'm, oh. I just happen to be the host of this podcast. This, what are you talking about? This think, is superpower, right? Yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> on time, on budget. Yeah, on time, on budget. I think uh, without, what, without missing the deadline. Uh, I try. I try, ladies and gentlemen. That's how they do, do in the Bronx. Yeah. That's right. That's how it's done. <laughs> right? You don't, you don't, you don't battle look. the boroughs? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I think one of the things I like to use when an individual who isn't like more business savvy and kind of just wants this thing in a big bang iteration. I try to incorporate a way of doing some form of AB testing to show like, Hey, like look at, look at the progress that we're getting by adding these features incrementally. And they could be both good and or bad, right? Like if, if we're working on something and we find out early on that it's not like feasible to the customers or to the users, Then imagine if Bobby, the businessman, spent $600,000 on me to build this application and I actually get it done in six months, but then no one wants to use it. Right. Like that is like the worst part. Imagine it's like, you know, if you see a, a pool of water, you can either, you know, slowly get yourself into the water or you just like jump straight in. But who's to say that they're piranhas inside or who's to say that there's something more dangerous. Like right. you want to make sure that they're, you're safe to, you know, build this entire product safely with measurements of data that can translate to both the, devel- the developers who are invested in wanting to build this awesome product and for the business who have insight on whether or not the thing that was built is a good product. Yeah, that's a good point. Especially like, having regular feedback. I think that's been a common theme that we've been talking about. Like if you're doing iteration and you're not getting feedback, then you could still end up in the same place where six months down the line, you could be like, okay, now I'm ready to show the world my product 
and then no one likes it. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah. I guess I should have asked someone. Yeah, that, <laughs> that feedback loop is uber crucially important right? for so many reasons. Like you can get feedback like the, the users and the business can say, yeah, this is great, but there's this thing over here, this button that's in the wrong place or it doesn't quite do what I was expecting it to do and then correct that as you're going. Whereas if you, if you spend six months worth of effort, you have no way of being able to correct anything at the end of the six months. And add to that that you will often have a big bang integration where you're trying to integrate and deploy everything at once. And, you know, there'll be APIs that all various systems have to line up on and integrate with. And you realize that you're not sending the right field through or, you know, some validation is failing. You know, there's all sorts of things that occur there. Yeah, and I bet if you talk to any of the clients that Bobby worked for, they'll tell you. Well, what, 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 <laughs> come on. He claimed. Well, this, I'm not talking about I, I can, Bobby. I'm talking can, about the generic Bobby. Yeah. Right. Well, I can actually vouch for Bobby because he and I were working on a project together a few years back Yeah, where we did incremental design and oh. it was highly, highly successful. Yeah, I've, I've, I've heard that there's still like design artifacts from this still to this day. Yeah, it, it is living on. It yeah. is important because <laughs> yeah. then they like, like, hey, we realized this is not really useful to us. They were like, oh, snap. Imagine we spent like three months doing something that wasn't like feasible. And we found out like in the span of the deploy, the day we we rolled it out. And I was like, oh, after a couple of days, and we can, you can do that at a later time. Cool. Boom. We knew straight yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah, and I, think, I guess like spoilers. I've heard this story before, but before, but like I remember when you mentioned it, like by its name as the Mona Lisa of design. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. it was definitely. I was like, well, I imagined like big, all at once design because it's Mona Lisa. Like you know, it's 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 a work of art. And but like, if you look at Mona Lisa, there are all these layers under the paint. Yeah, right. I mean, you yeah, study. yeah, right. Like, but that's that's like what, that's the illusion, I guess. Of of the work of art. If like you can carbon you, date a whiteboard marker, you'd have layers. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. See all the emotions that went uh, into exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the the design diagram that uh, we were talking about here was a design diagram that started with just a couple of UML classes, and then grew to, like I think it was like two or three to begin with, and then it grew to what fifty or sixty over time. Yeah. And it was written on a whiteboard, so unlike the UMLs Conrad spoke about before, we couldn't throw them in the fire. So. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there'd be like some toxic hazards. Yeah, yeah we don't, <laughs> want, don't, don't light up. Don't light up. Erasable markers is probably not good for you. Don't, don't do that. Cool. I imagine the conversation on incremental design is probably something new to a lot of the listeners and maybe something that you've been doing for the past couple of months or years doing but we do believe that incremental design can definitely help you and the company you're working for to build products where you have a really tight feedback loop to know whether the thing you're building is feasible to your customers and your users so that you can go and deliver awesome products at a faster time do we have any teacher learns that we want to speak about in this particular segment today yeah so maybe some of the design patterns that i like to use when i'm Doing incremental design? Sure. If that's of interest. No, go right ahead. All right. So the design patterns I like to use, dependency injection is a big one, especially in a statically typed language where you can't use, where you can't open classes to modify their 
functionality mm-hmm. like you can in Ruby with open classes. Right. Although you can still do dependency injection in a dynamically typed language. It's just not commonly done. I've recently came across a company who is doing dependency injection in Python. Oh. Yeah, which they're very happy with. Anyway, so strategy design pattern is, is one where you basically take an in, in, implementation of a class and that might change based upon the actual implementation. So let's say you have some text that you want to send outwards. So you might do some text processing. And then once you've processed the text, you want to send it outwards, but you don't want to bake where that text gets sent to in the thing that processes the text. You might have a, a file repository that where the text is written to a disk or to a database or another strategy where it's sent out to over the web to some other system for storing or whatever needs to be done with that text. Then there's proxy where you might wrap an existing object with something like a database transaction. So you're, you might be writing to a database without any transactions, and then you could use a proxy to wrap the thing that's writing to the database with a transactional aspect or transactions, which then mitigate the need to handle the transactions within the thing that's actually writing to the database. Does that make sense? Mm. More or less, with taking the transaction in the database, you wrap it in this object that can then use that information across the the application? Yeah, exactly. So you don't end up... So you're separating the concern of the database transaction from the actual interaction with the database. So you're creating a, a separation. So then you can easily test the transactional layer, and you can also test the thing that's reading and writing to the database, the repository. So the idea is that there are different strategies for saving text. One is saving it to a file, another is saving it to disk, another is hitting an API. Mm-hmm. And so you use a strategy object that you pass into whatever whatever the, it is. The text processor or you know, whatever it is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. it uses, it calls some generic method on that strategy mm-hmm. for, you know, like process text. And then mm-hmm. it does either the database transaction or the mm-hmm. disk write or the API hit. Yeah. Basically like implementing an interface. Exactly. Yeah. And then if you were to like wrap a proxy around that strategy, you would then separate the transaction from the reading and writing of the database. And you could also wrap a transactional proxy around the the disk writer or the HTTP writer. Something could go wrong when writing to disk and you might want to roll the transaction back at that point too. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. These things happen. They do. Yeah. You need to roll the transaction back. Yeah. Roll them back. I think I think that'll be useful. I've been thinking about like using local storage in a project, and mm. sometimes local storage doesn't work. It's oh, pretty unreliable. Yes, yeah, <laughs> I think it's Safari. So I think this will be useful. I think Safari will like act weird. I believe I'm not 100 percent sure. Yeah. Oh really? Dang. If you uh, well, use just, local storage? Yeah, I think local storage in Safari is yeah, has different if, behavior than if in Chrome. you oh. if you go in incognito mode, then yeah. local storage will throw an error, <laughs> whereas every other browser. We'll just separate it into its own store. Hmm. So you have to deal with that. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, that wraps up the show. I'd like to thank my co-host. Thanks for coming on down. Our producer, always good having you. And our special guest, Conrad, thank you so much for stopping on by. Thanks for having me, guys. It was a pleasure to be on. Yeah. There you go. Feel free to hit us up. Twitter.com slash Radio Free Rabbit. This is the rabbit hole. 
We'll see you next time.